0: Hello everyone, this is Michael Gallagher,
1: I'm Miles Blaney, and I'm Jeremy Knox,
0: and this is episode 5 of the M&M Podcast, where we're inviting in our first guest speaker.
1: (gasps) It's a privilege to be your first guest, it really is.
0: Can you uh, introduce yourself, Jeremy, for those of us who don't know what you do or who you are?
1: Sure, so I work uh, at the Murray House School of Education, and I co-direct the Center for Research in Digital Education, so... It's a group that does research, and it also does teaching around the use of technology in um, education, mainly in higher education, and thinking about the the social effects and uh, the the conceptions of technology that we have around that.
0: Excellent. So you're also particularly heavily invested in a particular strand of that center as well, right?
1: That's right, yeah. (laughs) It's good that you're keeping me uh, on my toes with what I actually do, which is uh, direct a theme called uh, Data Society. So, what we're trying to do in the centre is collect together a range of work, not, not just my own, but other colleagues such as Ben Williamson and uh, Judy Robertson and Andrew Menchez and others, who are working on technologies and, and, and areas of research which are explicitly trying to deal with the ways that education is becoming involved in the use of these kind of data intensive technologies that we're hearing about elsewhere and machine learning, AI, and these sorts of things. And how institutions and and groups and uh, corporate entities that are working with institutions are starting to use this technology and it's starting to encroach on various aspects of of educational life from governance to work in the classroom to things that students do with data. So you have all the answers then, yeah? Um, Definitely not. Uh, I have all the questions, though. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's good.
0: (laughs) That's a good academic deflect there. That's good. So, so, but obviously bringing you on was very topical for the things that we've been talking about, the automation, the learning analytics, uh, the adaptive learning that we're going to start to to move into as well. Uh, Should we introduce, this is episode five, and we should introduce episode six, I think.
2: Yeah, so episode six, uh, we're going to have our second guest which is massive. So that's Amory Scott, and I have to look at my screen to read out her title, which is Deputy Director of Learning, Teaching and Web Division, Digital Learning Applications and Media. Yes. Um, and so Amory specializes in learning analytics, um, and um, she's uh, been in this space for a long, long time. So she's a great person to have along for the next session anyway. Yeah,
0: from useful insights as well. So I think it really also suggests what we wanted to put across there as well is that these, Spaces. These digital spaces are being co-constructed by academics, by, by technologists, by a range of parties here.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. So, so Amory's based. Sorry, I should say within uh, Central Information Services, so Central IT team as well. So, Excellent.
0: Yeah. So I should also mention we're recording this from Moray House, yep. the house of Moray, from St John's Land. Actually, technically Simon Laurie, uh, second floor of Simon Laurie slash fourth floor of St John's Land.
2: Yeah, the, the fourth floor with a lot of stairs.
0: Yes that uh miles is lugging this kit over here and i think we're going to be taking this back to argyle house for the next episode yes because <laughs> so it's really heavy it's really heavy and i see him struggle with the weight of those stairs and, and swear and swear
2: and then you say to me i can hear you swearing on the stairs i can hear incredible. you swearing on the stairs yeah. because
0: and also why didn't you take
2: the elevator
0: either way either way moving on to our to our main attraction here is jeremy thank you for, again for being here And uh, Jeremy uh, is involved in a series of projects, uh, largely around data, and maybe we can talk to a few of those, uh, beginning with Data Justice Week, which just happened earlier this year.
1: Yeah, sure, so I suppose the wider context of that is this year I've been uh, very lucky to be seconded on a fellowship on a EFI, that's the Edinburgh Futures Institute, which I'm sure you've mentioned before on this this, uh, show. Is it a show? Podcast. Sure. So we could sure. go. Podcast. That's a podcast. It's sure. a podcast show. It's interchangeable. Show business. It's show business. Show business. We're in the business. It's the bright lights. Where's the business? Um, so this is a fellowship that's um, been working across EFI and the global academies. So it's seconded me for a day a week, which has been fantastic. I've been able to focus on a kind of research agenda uh, throughout this year. Um, and that agenda has been on data justice, which... Um, I can say a little bit about which is an sort of emerging area of research which is trying to grapple with the ways data are being um, increasingly used in our social institutions and in everyday life and uh, deriving from more kind of sociological take on what technology does in society as well as um, disciplinary areas such as uh, science and technology studies so trying to understand how. Um, technology gets developed and and becomes authoritative. Hmm. So I can say a few things about what um, and, and part of that has been to organize Data Justice Week, which was five days of seminars, student led sessions and workshops and things like that around this theme of data justice. And we invited all sorts of people from outside of Edinburgh and had lots of people from in Edinburgh as well talking about these themes across a range of issue issues not just education, but labour, social policy, um, activism, the arts, all those sorts of things, all all these things uh, are are ways that uh, we can talk about the justice issues of data, so, so maybe I can say a little bit about that. Yeah, a, yeah, yeah, that's um, important. important. That's important. Yeah. And do cut me off with the various sound effects that I know you've got stored up. We're <laughs> <I'm> waiting <laughs> desperately to use. <laughs> We're very professional. <laughs> so for me, really, data justice comes from. It's a kind of an emerging area, which um, is, and maybe maybe I can say I can say four things about it Please. To, to give to give you a bit of context. So, so what the perspective tries to do is to. Um, view the use of these data intensive technologies that we're talking about, AI and so on, in terms of broader social justice issues. So that's the underlying thrust of this set of work that various people are involved in doing. I should say the Data Justice Lab in Cardiff is one big group that are, that are doing this. They're trying to shift the discussion away from just talking about gadgets and bits of tech and trying to talk about how those technologies are actually fitting into broader and long-standing social justice issues, inequalities and all those sorts of other things. So they're trying to shift the conversation um, with the, the argument that there's too much, when we try to talk about the ethics of tech, there's too much of just talking about the technology itself, as if the ethical issue stops, starts and stops with the technology. So they're trying to see it in a much, in a much broader way. The second thing would be to try and understand technology, and it's kind of related to that. Um, in terms of really much broader relational, uh, relations with the ways that the technology is produced and used. So there's a really great example of this, um, which was quite prominent um, online recently, a piece of work done by Kate Crawford and um, uh, Vladan uh, Jola, which you might have come across, which is the anatomy of AI. So they produced this huge diagram, a fantastic diagram that you can look at online and it's very detailed. And they tried to map all the connections that made a desktop smart speaker. I think it might've been the Amazon Echo. Mm -hmm. So what they did in this diagram is include all from the mining of rare earth metals, such as coltan that are required for Mm -hmm. the technology to the labor issues involved in putting it together to the global infrastructures that, that make the thing work. And their argument was that, you know, this is AI. It's not just the gadget on the desk or the gadget in your hand. This is actually how we have to think about what AI is, is this broader system. So that's a great example of how when you widen the lens on how we look at what technology is, we can then see these social justice issues. We can then see what kind of labor practices are involved in making it What kind of environmental issues Mm. are related to its production?
2: I think it's really interesting because all we we people will probably think about is the end product, as in you ask something, you get something, or something interacts with it. Mm. You don't see everything else that goes behind it. that that, You know, like you said, from the hardware creation to the software creation to these creation of these algorithms to to whatnot, and people just see that Mm. I'm on my watch, it tells me what my. I'll do my steps today because I'm on on course to do my steps today, yeah. making
0: that production. So yeah. does it provide? I mean, this is sort of off the cuff question, but does it provide a more holistic kind of take? Rather, because some of this has surfaced a little bit through labor discussions. You talk, you know, you can you can hear stories, obviously, about sweatshop conditions and how that produces a particular microchip or what have you. Or you sometimes you hear a little bit about it in the environmental bit, like the carbon impact of technology. Does the focus on data justice give you a little bit more of a holistic? kind of lens, rather than zeroing in on a particular sector of that conversation?
1: Absolutely. I think that's what a lot of people working in this area are trying to do, is really broaden that lens and try to pick up all these different elements that make up the technology and make up the AI. Because of course, and I think you've um, talked about this previously, because of course, I've listened to all the other podcasts. <laughs> oh, <that's Yeah>. Intimately. Love <laughs> oh, it. You know, really what we're talking about when we talk about AI. and And nowadays, we're talking about machine learning. We're not talking about you know, nobody's really working on general AI in this in the sense that we we might talk about AI as something programmed. That's the, the way we used to think about AI. Right? Is we sit down and we program something and we try to make it intelligent. When we talk about AI now, we're talking about machine learning. We're talking about technology which tries to get out there and collect as much data as it can, and use that data to grow and train its own intelligence. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's intimately connected with the idea of data and it needs more data. So that's the kind of argument that people working in data justice are trying to make, that um, the technology is necessarily involved in these broad movements reaching out not only to collect data from people and raising uh, ethical and perhaps justice issues around privacy, but also that um, the the processing and and the, the, the immense amount of work that's required to process that data, Um, and you mentioned sweatshops, of course there's also um, really interesting work that's come out that contrasts the sort of idea about the data scientist, you know, the white collar, the sexiest job in the world as as it was uh, coined recently. The contrast to that are the kind of blue collar data workers and there's there's been a lot of work that's highlighted how lots of these companies developing AI, AI are employing low paid, workers to do this kind of repetitive work of categorizing images mm-hmm. and and data in places like Kenya and, and in p- places like rural China um, so there's kind of labor issues there directly involved with the need to process data on this kind of large scale in fact machines aren't able to do all of it it does need this sort of low-level low-level labor to kind of support it so those are precisely the kind of things that um, people working in j- data justice are trying to highlight and they're trying to bring into the Conversation
0: Interesting,
2: yeah. I think in China as well, they're trying to target themselves as to be the number, the leading pioneers of artificial intelligence. And that's where no labor agreements, no unions, all that kind of stuff are, are great for them because they can, they've got the power, the, the resource to do that as mm-hmm. well.
0: Yeah, so you're certainly, I mean, are you, we're starting to see, you see, it's been going on for a little bit too, right? You see like Amazon Turk and you see that kind of uh, working for cents on the dollar and, and, and these types of things on minimal, really medial tasks. And uh, I think at that moment, it wasn't necessarily being thought to have gone to any sort of machine learning algorithms, that this was work that had to be done in some level. And it was an employment opportunity It was presented in a particular way. Mm -hmm. And there's micro labor, micro uh, work platforms and things of that nature that target these menial tasks as well. So it's interesting to think about the labor pool necessary along with the, uh, the environmental concerns, along with all these other bits that coalesce into some sort of AI. Like what we know as AI, but that's fascinating.
2: It. So that and, and that's what we know as AI. So yeah. it's it's this kind of imaginary thing of computers doing yeah. everything, and, and you know, there's not people involved with the process at all. Absolutely, you're like people are massively involved with it.
0: Absolutely. Is there? Was, so that that was two. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Sorry. We're, I'm, we're <laughs> no, it's a, go it's I'm good <laughs> conversation. Yeah. I was starting quite ambitiously there. Yeah. So th- so the other two, th- those would be the sort of conceptual ways I think that people approach data justice. The other two. Uh, very quickly I think are to do with what is emerging, I think is quite an important critique of ethics because, you know, ethics is kind of firmly on the agenda now, you know. um, Whenever people are talking about data and I now, you know, this idea of of trying to raise ethical issues about it is pretty mainstream. It's not just something that, you know, philosophers and academics are getting annoyed about on the sidelines, you know, Mm -hmm. this is kind of mainstream stuff. But I think what's particularly interesting um, uh, recently, is academic work, which is which is criticising the way that ethics is being defined and approached, which is another aspect I think of what people in data justice are trying to kind of highlight. They're trying to suggest that ethics might not be the best way for us to talk about this kind of tech. And there's there's a few ways, but maybe the maybe a couple of things to highlight there are um, the prominent ones are how corporations are kind of taking on very deliberately, very overtly trying to take on their own uh, uh, development of ethics. And and we've heard terms like ethics watching in this kind of context. So, you know, we're talking about the big powerful Silicon Valley companies here, the alphabets, the Facebooks and so on. You know, we can see routinely them very, very uh, deliberately trying to do their own ethics as a way of avoiding legislation, as a a way of avoiding public oversight of uh, uh, oversight from public institutions about about what they're doing Um, and there's lots been written recently about very cynically about how um, corporations are kind of defining their own ethical guidelines and then seeing their kind of job as done you know they they write some ethical guidelines at the start of a project publish it onto a pdf on their website and you know that that means that that they've covered all the ethical ground and, and whatever is whatever is produced is then done under, uh, un, under those, those ethical guidelines and is, is therefore is therefore fine. So really the critique that's coming from um, and building on some of those ideas I was talking about previously is trying to highlight the complexity of the technologies we're talking about and how there's a, th- there's a real inability to predict what the social influence is going to be, that these technologies are so ingrained in the ways that social institutions operate and in the ways people um, contribute but are also um, influenced by the technologies that um, it's really impossible to to say at the outset what the social justice implications might be so that's the other real key aspect of what people in this area are calling for is a much more dynamic idea of governing these technologies and and a resistance to the idea that we can simply set down a set of ethical guidelines at the start and cover ourselves for any kind of eventuality.
0: Yeah, it's an emerging space, right?
2: Yeah, so you're saying there about like uh, corporations setting up their own ethical guidelines as well. You know, individually they can define what they, what they think is ethical then, and they'll go by that. So is there like a lack of kind of a joined up thinking in regards to space as well, where companies are so, well, they have an agenda, obviously, um, but should there be some more kind of thinking about ethics in this space? And Definitely,
1: and and I think the the example from Google is you know really pertinent here, which you might have heard the story a few months back where they they proposed this ethics board. You know they made this big deal that they were going to have this kind of um, uh, ethics board, which was kind of separate from Google and, and brought all these different people in. But of course, it fell apart in about a week, and the main reason in the in the that was put out in the press for this was because um, the, the, the inclusion of a particular member, I forget the person's name, but somebody who headed up a, a generally a kind of right-wing think tank in the US and this person was included on the on the ethics, um, this, this ethics board which is supposedly kind of independent from Google and a number of other people on the board protested and a number of Google workers protested that this person was on the board. But of course, really for me, that kind of spoke to the problem that um, I think what these organizations want is a kind of neat, um, cohesive, and very easy way of working and defining ethics. And I think the kind of spaces we're talking about are actually spaces of contestation. And that's where work like uh, Kate Crawford, who brings in political theorists like Chantal Mouffe to talk about AR technologies think are doing really important work to show that you know the the ways that these technologies are are, are constantly involved on in our everyday lives mean that we need to be constantly thinking about what the new ethical issues are so dynamic space Mm -hmm. it's a space where we constantly have to work at deciding what ethics is and what justice is and what the justice claims are yeah so it's not something that we can kind of lock down yeah at at the outset
2: so like uh, you know, I think like Facebook would be the obvious example. Show me how that's evolved from mm-hmm. I like this and I like that to to what it is now. The you know the, the uh, um, a social media thing that can be politicized very easily with you know information whether it's wrong or right, and um, but everybody's point of views are on there. And ethics does contain everybody's point of views. So that, right. Unfortunately,
0: just with ethics without teeth, though. Sometimes it's it's the lip service of ethics. Know like these committees and these forms and these PDFs that sit on barren, barren sites and, well, and trying to
2: read them. It'd be a nightmare. I think
0: I think it's kind of interesting. Actually, what you're saying is it's an evolving thing that has to be revisited constantly, based on the permutations of how it evolves. But I mean, this is similar to the way we're sort of approaching this project as well. Some of the projects we're working on here at the university around automation. It's just this idea that you can have a discrete research project around a particular technology. Have outputs that speak to the the veracity of that technology to service a particular need in the university, and then walk away from it, or seem anachronistic now because these things evolve. So we we, we're going to talk later in one of these podcasts about adaptive learning, and we've we engaged with it as much as possible this year. I think mostly this year, early last year, or late last year. I'm sorry, and and recognize that it wasn't mature enough to have the really have the discussion around, but at the same time to say it wouldn't be. Would be absurd. It's yeah. not something you can visit once and just walk away this from. Is,
2: this is a massively evolving space, yes. and it would be daft for us, like you say, Michael, to walk away from a project and say that's what it's done stunning for the university to in three years' time. Or oh, let's look at this again. you yes. like, it, it's kind of crazy to think that. It's that. It's not. It's something we have to invest in, and to be, if we're not involved with it,
0: it'll just absolutely. Be crazy. Was there a fourth?
1: That was, the four. I think that, that was the four. That four. Was, four. The four. <laughs> I was the four. Oh, I see. Yeah, I'm right. sure I got there in the end. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I, I,
0: I want to use the rest of the time to have you talk a little bit about your LARC project, because I think it's more of a, uh, an experimental approach, can I say it? Yeah, that
1: way? I think I think it's, it's actually a useful way to maybe connect what I've been talking about there in terms of justice with actually doing some educational stuff, because um, this work I've been doing with justice, as, I, as I've, I've probably... Um, uh, conveyed there is, you know, it, that work is not really happening. Happening in an educational space, it's mm-hmm. happening in a kind of digital sociology space and a science and technology studies space. Um, and I think you know that's one really what I've been trying to do with this fellowship is to try to bring that work to education and try to get people in education concerned about these issues and to, and to see that we we need, we need to have some a broader sense of education around what data is doing to pedagogy and learning. And that's really what the LARC, LARC is about. Um,
0: Can you uh, d- yeah, describe what LARC is? Sir?
1: Yeah, so it's uh, it's a piece of uh, s- very simple piece of technology that I developed um, a couple of years ago with some uh, some internal Funding from the university, so thanks to the shout out to the Ptas crew. Yes, um, they've done well by us. Yeah, yeah. So they they were very generous to to award the project, which allowed me to develop this piece of software, which essentially sits alongside Moodle, and what it does is it um, gathers data from a particular Moodle course and the, the, all, all the students and teachers associated uh, with that course, and um, it. Uh, Uses thresholds on, on on particular bits of data from from Moodle. So, for example, uh, um, uh, the number of times a, a a user uses a discussion forum. So it'll log that data as a kind of as a, as a count as a number, and it'll establish a threshold particular thresholds, which will decide um, what kind of feedback students, particular student, will get from. The number that they the data count that they get for how they've interacted in that way in Moodle. So essentially, what I'm saying is, it is a, it's a bit of software, I'm not describing it very well here, oh, but um, that's great. it's a bit of software that looks at data from Moodle and generates a written report. So it's trying to play with the idea of a kind of school report card. Mm-hmm. And it's trying to critique the idea of, uh, of the kind of visualization, which is the way that learning analytics is, uh, lots of the time is approached justified around this sort of idea that kind of, you know, visual the visuals are... Dashboards. and Dashboards are dashboards. a much easier, a much more understandable way to understand how people are behaving. So it's kind of critiquing that a, a bit by going back to a sort of written report. And it uses these threshold values to add pre-written sentences and generate a kind of written paragraph for how a student is, is working in Moodle. But the other key thing that we were trying to sort of critique, um, with this project is the idea that uh, learning analytics is a kind of is kind of institutional. So the most of the way, certainly at this time when we were this is a couple of years ago when we were developing this project, is learning analytics seemed to be something that was approached approached entirely from an institutional perspective. So we're an institution, or we're a group of teachers. And we want to know what students are doing, and we're going to report on it, and then we're going to intervene. So there's very very little that I could see that was thinking about how students could contribute to that process, how students could think about. Um, having a say in what it means to have their data recorded and what it means to, to receive automated feedback. So what we did, and certainly with the project we weren't claiming that we were solving um, student participation, we were just making a few small interventions into that space. And what we did was um, allow a few functions in the software for students to make choices about the kind of reports that they were going to generate. So they could choose a particular week for example of course might be 12 weeks they could say well report on me report on my week six or report on my week three and that would allow them to compare their their progress and it also allowed them to choose a particular theme so students could choose to be reported uh, generate a report on their attendance or their engagement or uh, categories like that and of course we left those categories fairly ambiguous because the idea was we wanted students to think about what those categories meant. So if they chose to be um, generate a report on engagement, it would provide this paragraph of feedback about how engaged they were in the course. But it didn't really say how that that was that was actually scored, how that was actually measured, and that was part of the sort of was that intentional? Um, definitely intentional, and it was part of uh, the idea of using. Using the LARC within a kind of structured pedagogy. So we weren't intending for students to use this bit of software independently. It was part of a kind of structured working with students to discuss these issues. And we'd ask them, you know, what what do you think engagement meant? And some of them might have an idea and some of them might try and reverse engineer it and generate different reports and try to work out what engagement meant. And we thought that was a very important um, thing for students to to start thinking about and start learning is, Mm. how are these bits of software that people are developing, creating these themes? I mean, the the other learning analytics that we find out there have themes, they have themes like on target, at risk, you know, these are the sort of standard ways that these technologies are operating, they define students according to particular categories. So I think um, this is connecting it back to some of the ideas we were talking about justice, we do need to really think a lot more about how we're educating students to think critically about the ways that institutions are using data to report on them, and that, that was part of what we were trying to do with the mark is really to get students to think, what is happening here, how am I being measured, categorised, and and what does this mean for my experience? Uh,
2: I think, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, reading um, your your paper as well, I think you highlight one really interesting aspect of it as well that we're always trying to intervene to try and get completion and scores and all that kind of stuff and I think it's I can't remember the line exactly but you know education uh, being scared of people failing and what that means and how people reflect and then they'll might change what they do and with predictive analytics and analytics sometimes it's all about you're okay you're okay you're okay and um, you know the green amber red produces mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff the, the nightmare systems and dashboards and all, I think it's really interesting and kind of I think uh, you know the qualitative stuff as well when I'm thinking about it, but that's not a click. You know how can you record that? It might be red, but I'm constantly thinking about it. I'm doing stuff outside of this platform, but I'm red. Uh, you know the impact it has on somebody who's the learner. It's really interesting. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I think that's a really good point. And we don't really know. I mean, the, the educational psychologists have, have been working on this a lot longer than me or the people developing learning analytics. You know, working on this idea of know what does feedback do to a student I, I don't think that you know there's no clear evidence of of whether saying you've done well or you're doing badly has the same effect on students right you know we, we don't know it might motivate to say you're on task and you're doing well might, might motivate somebody one week but a couple of weeks later it might make them feel terrible and might push them back right yeah. so so you know the the it's it, idea with learning is is it kind of Makes this feedback very concrete, in a way that is quite troubling.
0: Yes, makes the feedback concrete, and it it's rather opaque about how it came up with that feedback. So, yeah, correct, yeah, right? and, and so it's the black yeah. boxy part of this whole equation as well. So
1: yeah, and I think what the what, one of the other phrases I use in the paper, which I'm sort of struggling to remember now, is you know it. What we did with the lot was try to make make learning analytics educational. So we tried to make it people think about what learning analytics is doing, and make that an educational process. Whereas, from what I could see, what learning analytics was doing in, in other spaces, certainly at that time was not really being education at all, it was reporting on learning, there was nothing educational about it, there's nothing you could really learn, apart from assuming that, uh, you know, that the data was telling you something useful and authentic about what you were doing. Interesting.
0: Well, I mean, it actually speaks directly to something Miles and I are doing now. Yeah. Uh, using, uh, uh, experimenting, which no, we're, we're not using yet, but we're yeah, experimenting yeah. with a tool called OnTask.
2: Yes. So. Which is what? So OnTask on, on is a open source tool, um, it's used, it was created in uh, Australia and it's used by institutions in Australia and the US. Um, I think the person that uh, created OnTask is actually in one of your papers, Abelardo. I'll probably get the name wrong. Um, and on task is like a rules-based kind of um, uh, feedback system uh, where we just import data in, we create some text conditions based on rules. And the best way I explain it, explain it to people is it's like an I, IFTT, if this, then that, um, and then someone get a personalized email uh, relating to what they've done within the course. And it's all created, there's no... We try to remove the, the black box element and say, you know, the academics will create the rules, they'll create the content, they create the text. And it means that you can give that kind of personalized feedback at scale. And it's trying to, uh, it's looking at figuring out how we can put the teacher at the center of this process, but enable them to do things at a okay. scale.
0: I, it almost makes me think that what we're doing with On Task, what Miles and I are doing with, with faculty with On Task, is almost the opposite side of what you were doing with Lark with students we're putting teachers in front of these tools and saying, now, how would you construct logic around the idea of feedback? And it's, f- quite frankly, it's blowing my mind because the permutations of how this feedback can work, uh, you, you can, the, the complexity of how many rules that you can come up with is- It's the language. It's the language it's of th- everything. It, it's, it's, it's very, very challenging to get your mind around. It expands exponentially quite quickly depending on how granular you want the feedback mm-hmm. to be.
1: Actually, I've always thought of OnTask as quite similar to what we were trying to do with the LARC. I mean, there are definitely differ- differences around how we were trying to focus on student participation. But I remember when Dragan Gasevich was here as Chair of Learning Analytics, and he was heavily involved in um, in OnTask. And and, uh, and I heard a lot about it from him speaking here in the center and in, in informatics and other places. And I thought the the idea of automating feedback was actually pretty similar. That's what we were trying to do in the LARC as well. We were trying to be a little bit more critical about how we were doing it. But I think both projects, and clearly they had a lot more money than me, but um, it's a lot more complex system. You know, the LARC is actually very, very basic and we, we weren't trying to produce really much of a technical system. We were trying to really get students to talk and kind of discuss it rather than actually make a system but actually, the way that OnTask works with generating automated feedback—you know—that's pretty central to what we were trying to do in the lab as well. So. Interesting.
0: It's very interesting, and I think we'll pick this up again in the next episode when we talk to Anne Marie.
2: Yeah. So, so Anne marie she's been heavily involved. She's been one of the kind of uh, pioneers for pushing OnTask into the institution. So, she's yeah. That's the next podcast.
0: And it's just been given.
2: So it's just passed all the internal committees in the University of Edinburgh. So it means that um, all the kind of concerns ethically and. But the usage of it for a pilot. For a, pilot um, yes. a pilot has been approved.
0: We, we wanna make the case that ethics will continue to evolve in yes. this space, so we need to be constantly <laughs> we need engaging. To be constantly on so I think we should probably wrap that up because we're at thirty two minutes. Time flies when you're having a good chat about learning analytics and we wanna thank uh, Jeremy Knox for coming and agreeing to to talk to us. It was Wonderful conversation. Well, it's thanks great so much. to be
1: here. I, I've heard so much about the podcast, and uh, <laughs> it's it's great to be finally here. You know, I've been waiting some time for the invitation, but finally came. <laughs>
0: so thanks so much. To, to sign off, this is uh, Michael Gallagher,
1: Miles Blaney,
0: and we'll see you next time.